0: Weeks session on sexuality. If this is awkward for any of you, just know that the first time I taught this message I was going to teach today, my parents and in-laws were actually in here, and that just got really awkward really fast. Not only that, we had a birthday party afterwards, and so they were all over, and it was like, just avoid eye contact with everybody at the party. So, uh, the, look, it's a really important topic to talk about, and I'm really glad you're here because uh, it is such a huge topic for us. I mean, the modern narrative out there has done a huge disservice To our entire generation, um, telling people that sex is okay however you want to express it, whenever you want to express it, much to the harm of so many people. And so that's why we're talking about it. That's why we we have to, and we need to, and want to talk about it, because God's Word actually has a lot to say about it. So here's my hope today as we go into this, uh, and I want to unravel some of the lies that we've been pitched in our modern narrative. But if you're married in the room today, my hope is that you walk away from a message like this with real tools on how to create a deeper, more meaningful, trusting uh, covenant bond together through sex and, and have your marriage go to a whole nother level. My, my hope is that this is incredibly empowering for you uh, as your marriage. And, and, and honestly, some of us have gone through some really rough patches in marriage Maybe, maybe even especially if you've been in the church because you've been pitched uh, some things in evangelical Christianity that haven't been super helpful when it comes to sexuality. Uh, and man, if, if you're single in the house today, here's my hope for you. My hope, honestly, is that you cast such a big vision of what God's design of sexuality is that really, I think, which, which ought to blow up the worldview that we've been pitched today today. which which really has has put sexuality into an incredibly narrow, small, very base view. My hope is that it blows up and it becomes so glorious, so beautiful, that a reverence comes around this topic for you, and you'd be willing to wait for the context where it's ultimately going to make you thrive and flourish. That's my hope today. But here's what's at stake on this, okay? Let's be honest. Like When people talk about sex, in our culture today, marriage is probably the most boring context that we could ever conceive of when it comes to expressing this, okay? Uh, This is what uh, one guy said in a a prominent magazine uh, in an article titled Eight Reads of Our Lives. The years in which we can be completely selfish, let loose, and ignore the consequences of bad decisions. To be honest, sometimes long-term relationships, i.e. marriage, can just get in the way of all that fun, All right, so as as recent as the mid-1990s, we've got to understand how recent this, this perspective is. As recent as the 1990s, most women were married in their early 20s. Back in just the 90s, we're talking 30 years now. But since then, a new thought of really achievement, self-actualization, and fun sexually, however you want to express it, has taken hold. And that number has jumped up from early 20s to late 20s for women and men getting married. And so marriage has been delayed over and over and over. Uh, it really, it's, it's been delayed by almost 10 years. Um, and, and one person said, man, I'll get married when I'm done having fun. Right, when I'm done kind of building me, And find fulfillment and pleasure for me, then I'll get married. Because marriage, it's like having chicken every night for dinner. So people are waiting until they don't have any other option but to get married, right? Who wants to have chicken every dinner when you can have a whole plethora of foods to enjoy? You know what I'm saying? That's what a lot of people think about. Okay. So now, just because there's a delay in marriage doesn't mean there's a delay in our sexual drive. So many young people are like, I got, I got to meet these needs. And so where did they go? Well, an article in 2015 by Vanity Fair announced that Tinder and the hookup culture apps really have created a dating apocalypse, That's what they said. Uh, this, again, not a secular, or not a Christian magazine, secular, but he said the, the norm now for young people is to easily locate multiple sexual partners and, this is important, avoid committed relationships. This is what's at stake here. So many people are distancing themselves from relationships and connection, but they want sex, and they've completely divided what ought to have been brought together from the very beginning and made them completely separate, and, and, and they say it because marriage sex is boring. Man, it gets really exciting when you can just kind of explore a little bit. Now, that's what a lot of the secular world pitches at us. I think what we've heard a lot in the Christian world growing up is uh, sex is awful, it's dirty, it's vile, so save it for the one you love one day. That's what we get pitched. And, and for me, I came to faith when I was eight years old. Uh, so uh, when, whenever sex was talked about, which was incredibly infrequent, it was like, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Make sure you don't do that. It's this unforbidden fruit. And just like Eve was pitched the unforbidden fruit temptation, that didn't go over so well. And I think for a lot of Christians, man, when they get pitched that, man, it's this thing that you shouldn't talk about, shouldn't touch, and definitely don't go anywhere near it, we just kind of get curious, right? Right? So here's, here's where I went as a kid. When I got pitched at, I was always a curious kid. I always wanted to kind of stretch some of the boundaries. And when they said, don't go there, I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to cross that line, but I'm going to get as close as I possibly can. Because shows like Saved by the Bell, anybody else, come on, anyone else, Saved by the Bell told me, woo, every time someone came in without a t-shirt, that this is something I should check out. I just dated myself with that one right there. You're welcome. Um, But here's where we gotta go. Like, how do we understand it? How do we understand sex? How do we understand sexuality in marriage? Is it boring? Here's some of the questions we're gonna talk about today. How can sex be exciting if it's only with one person for the rest of my life? Isn't that gonna be boring? Second, is sex just dirty and a necessary evil? And should we be avoiding it if we really wanna be spiritual people? And then third, if not, how do I have quality sex? What's that look like? And real practical, how often? <laughs> Buckle up, okay? First Corinthians chapter 7, here's where we're going today. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. It's going to be on the screen as well. Believe it or not, the Bible addresses all of these things. You don't hear this a lot in church, uh, but this is going to be abnormal for some of you maybe who grew up in church. It's not abnormal for us here at the well because we're not afraid about it. So let me back up a little bit and just explain the, the, uh, the context of the, the book of Corinthians here. The city of Corinth was a seaport town where a lot of people would come in. Merchants would come in. They'd come out. So you had a ton of sailors. When you got a ton of sailors right around the area where they've been at sea for a long, long period of time, and they're, they're all kind of charged up sexually, what's going to happen? Well, man, like you go to the seaport town and you engage in the thousands of prostitutes that were surrounding the goddess of Aphrodite, which, which was fertility. And so it was a thriving place of prostitution. And we're gonna get into that a little bit later. Uh, But needless to say, there was a ton of sexual experimentation. A lot of people that would just go ahead and, and try all sorts of different things and try to be as free as you possibly could. That was the culture in Corinth. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian early young church. They haven't been in the faith for very long. And he's saying, I've got to help you guys understand a sexual ethic here because there's harm, there's damage that's happening on the inside of you at a mind, mental, emotional, and physical level And God doesn't want that, man. He wants you to flourish at all levels. So beginning in verse one, chapter seven, this is what Paul writes. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. This is a phrase that was going around in Corinth at the time. And that seems to be completely opposite of what I just told you because the city was so sexualized. But here's what was happening. There were some people that were saying, well, if we wanna be uber spiritual, then maybe we should just go without it. You know, the culture has been so rampant on this, and so let's just see sex as dirty, vile, evil, ugly, and we're just going to be uber spiritual, and we're going to be completely abstinent, even in our marriages. So Paul references this quote that he heard from them. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And here's what Paul says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, the NLT says, should fulfill her sexual needs, which kind of hits more at the heart of what that is fulfill his duty to the wife, and likewise her wife to her husband. Husbands and wives, you can go ahead and print that verse out, stick it on the fridge, and just create like a life verse out of that, okay? So good. Uh, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Sounds good. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Go ahead, lady. It's all yours right now. Don't deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. He believe, like some people think the Bible is boring, hard, hardly boring today, uh, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come to Together again, so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. He was single, but each of you has your own gift from God, and one has this gift, and another that gift. So here's the first thing I want you to write down in your notes. We we first, if we're going to capture God's sexual ethic, we've got to understand God is the author of great sex. God is the author. He designed it. He made it this way. He made it this way. Now. Paul, heads, uh, he takes on this vile, dirty, and necessary evil uh, component that I think not only infiltrated the, first, the church in the first century, but we've seen it in our culture as well. If you grew up in the church, like I said before, I mean, we got pitched this. And it's done some damage to our view of it. And honestly, for some of us who are married, your first wedding night was awkward because of this lie. So, I mean, some, some actually engaged the marriage night as virgins with this thought of, like, I'm not so sure this is even okay because of this lie that's been out there, okay? It's infiltrated the church. Honestly, the same lie was the, the, the reason that so many priests over hundreds and thousands of years have been celibates, and we've seen where that's gone. It hasn't been awesome, right? We're not going to get into that too much. But the view was the, the spiritual world is so much more important than the physical world And so if we're going to truly be spiritual people, we've got to transcend the physical world as much as we possibly can, liberate ourselves, and we're going to live abstinent lives. And Paul says, man, nothing can be further from the heart of God. Nothing can be further from the heart of God. In fact, Paul, just a chapter earlier in chapter 6, says that when sex happens, something that goes all the way back to the garden, that when you actually express sex inside the marriage context, you are expressing a promise over each other of commitment, of unity, of holistic self-donation, of like my soul melding with you, I am for you, to build you up. It is a beautiful, glorious thing. In fact, I mean, let's go back to the garden for a second here, okay? Okay this is wild, okay? When God first made Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden. First of all, there was no Eve. It was just Adam to begin with. Now, Adam was in charge of naming all the animals, right? He's watching all the animals, and they're procreating, and they've all got a spouse, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And at some point, he's like looking back like, man, I'm here just all alone. And God looks at him and says, you know what? It's not good for a man to be alone. And so we're going to do something here. And I love how God does this. Watch this. Ready? This is so good. In the middle of the night, while Adam is sleeping, God goes ahead and forms Eve. Now imagine with me when Adam wakes up and in the original context here, like both both of them had absolutely no clothes on. Adam wakes up from a deep sleep. He's like rubbing his eyes, the sleep out of his eyes. And he he wakes up and he looks over and he's like, I mean, I'm telling you, in that moment, Adam was not thinking, oh man, finally someone to help me plow the garden here. Why don't you pick up a rake and just get to work here? We gotta work this thing. No man, he was like, Woo! Let's go, God! That's awesome! I can't wait. Gimme, give me, give me, give me, give me. Yeah. Like something something like that. I don't know exactly how it went out because I don't know the Hebrew all that well. but I think it was gimme, 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 something like that. Something like that. So in Genesis 2:23, Adam says, Now this. This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the, the language behind it is exclamatory, like he can't wait. There's like a, an intoxication that takes over him. He's like, finally, this is awesome. And God's first command, Genesis 1:31, was what? Be fruitful and multiply. Yes, sir. I'm telling you, that's like one of the easiest commands, one of the best commands you could ever get from God. It's what he said, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam is like, you got it, God. Now, just to tell you, like, if you're like, Scott, you're overblowing this a little bit. Maybe it wasn't that crazy in the first context. Let me tell you this. <laughs> in case you, you, didn't, you're not, you haven't been aware, God actually wrote an entire book through someone about what, about just how erotically charged sex ought to be inside the marriage context. He called it Song of Songs. No kidding, if you actually read the book, I dare you to read that book without breaking a sweat, okay? Uh, But when you read the book, it actually describes people who are chasing each other, men and women, outside, completely naked and inflamed with intoxicating love for each other. Just to give you a couple of snippets here, Song of Solomon 4, uh, uh, verse Twelve and sixteen, he says. He says he's looking for this woman that he, like is his wife. He says, "You are a, a garden locked up, my sister, my bride." And don't be thrown by the whole sister thing. It's like you know, you're my Israelite. It wasn't that. All right. Anyway, moving on. Uh, you're a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You're a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. And she goes, "Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere, and let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits." Let me tell you, they're not talking about a literal garden. Song of Solomon five verse one says. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. And Song of Solomon 5, one again, it, it, uh, right after that, it says, eat friends and drink. Fill, uh, be filled with love. One commentator put the scenes this way. There is no, shy, no shamed mechanical movement under these sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. Let me take a pause for a moment and just say this is God's intention for you in your marriage. He meant for there to be unbelievable joy and oneness and unity, even intoxication in that covenant love. He meant for that to be that way. Just two more. One from the guy's side and one from the ladies. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. This is the Bible. Deuteronomy 24.5 says, if a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he's to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Please her. So the Bible is saying, that you ought to be so captured by each other. This is the vision that God has for us in this one. But again, man, let me just take a step back. Like a lot of, some, some of us have entered into marriage, and it's not been that easy. Connecting that way has not been super easy. There's been hurt. There's been pains. There's been past wounds. There's been all sorts of damage done to you from relatives, uh, from friends, from bad relationships. And we bring that into the context of marriage. And sometimes, because the communication, I'm telling you, as a pastor, the top three issues that bring, people bring to me when it comes to counseling and some of the stuff that they struggle with, it's communication, it's money, and it's sex. It gets so complicated with all of the histories and all of the pains and all the wounds that you've been brought that sometimes we enter into it and say, man, I'm just not sure this is going to work. I'm not sure this is really great. It's not fulfilling me at the, at the level that I was hoping it would be. And I just wanna want encourage you that when you engage it right, it can be. It can be awesome. And God meant it to be that way, okay? Some of you right now are just like, I can't believe I showed up today. Wrong Sunday to show up. All right, now why, why is sex best in marriage? Here's the next question that we gotta ask when we're looking at this text. Why is it best in marriage... And not just experimenting, going around, you know, exploring all sorts of other people. Why is it best in marriage? And then how do we experience it at its best inside the marriage context, okay? Looking back at the, at the, the passage here, 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 4, uh, Paul says, he clears, I'm just going to read it over again. It says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the, hu- the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband, And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to the wife. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Paul is saying that when you get into the marriage covenant there, like your body doesn't belong to you anymore. There is something so self-giving, so completely sacrificial that your body's not yours. It belongs to your spouse. And just in case you're thinking, well, that doesn't mean he's got demands over all this, like, that's not, that's not what it is. There's a debt in all of this, but it's not, hey, you owe me. It's, hey, I owe you. And when we approach it that way, I, I owe you, man, you, I want to fulfill you. I want to build you up. When that's at the heart of all of this, man, it all flourishes and thrives. Now, before we jump more into the text real quick, studies actually prove that married sex beats all other sex. No kidding, Uh, the University of New York and University of Chicago uh, in what kind of came up as one of the most authoritative studies to date from cohabiting to single to marriage sex, uh, they they said marriage sex really beats all other sex. This is what they said. Uh, actually building from that and uh, Linda Waite and Maggie uh, Gallagher in their book, The Case for Marriage, they kind of both combine all these national survey sex stats. And this is what they said. Uh, 40% of married women have sex twice a week compared to 20% of single and cohabitating men and women. Over 40% of married women said that their sex life was emotionally and physically satisfying compared to 30% of women single women. 50% of married men are physically and emotionally content versus 38% of cohabiting men. And so again, they they summed it up and they said marriage, sex beats all else. Married women had much higher rates of usually or or, always having orgasms. 75% as compared to women who were never married, which was much less than that. So, and not people who, who had, had kind of grown up in the faith, uh, in, in a variety of faiths, actually. They were, they were the most likely to get the highest level of pleasure. Religious people. And so, in other words, it's not the Kardashians or Miley Cyrus that's getting the most out of sex. It's actually 55-year-old Mary down the street who goes to church with a little extra around the waist and tends to her garden, shuffling through all of that. I mean, those are the people that are getting the most out of sex, man, are you guys like deadpanning in this morning? Like, that's kind of funny, isn't it? Look, and some of you are just like, I'm never gonna look at her the same way anymore, like that lady that's tending in her garden. Look, for some of us, we have totally missed out on this because what God is saying in this text is that the one night stands in sex are not where we find the greatest pleasure. Sex works in the, the best way in a covenant relationship where it's not just that, that first time fling, it's something that actually grows over time. That when you engage in this self-sacrificing act of giving giving and giving and giving and giving and knowing and understanding and being tender and learning each other's emotions and hearts and minds and life together for years and years and years and years, it grows. Sex is so much more than physical. It's a unity of people at all levels. And so God said, man, when we fulfill this, to love each other this way, this is how we're actually gonna get the most out of it how we're really gonna flourish and thrive. And so the second thing in your notes that you gotta write down is that the best sex is unselfish sex. And not just unselfish, but covenantal. That when you understand sex as as not just a, this this is in it for me and whatever I can get out of this, but when it's no, I'm gonna give myself for the sake of the other person, which has always been marriage. You don't get into it for contract reasons. Man, I love all the things that you bring to me. You're gonna really enhance my life. No, covenant marriage being, man, I'm here for you. I'm laying my life down for you to raise you up. When we approach sex that way, man, it thrives and flourishes at all levels. This this is the amazing thing because when we look at the modern narrative here, It really does a huge disservice. Again, the modern narrative says remove all constraints. It's all up to you. You fulfill yourself. And the hookup culture says turn off your emotions. No joke. I've been reading all sorts of stuff this week about this. Uh, In in colleges, there are actual blog sites that tell people how to have hookup sex without hurting yourself. And what they say is turn all your emotions off. Make sure that you've had at least three to five drinks before you go ahead and hook up with someone because you don't want the possibility of getting hurt. You've got to express yourself sexually, but don't get hurt. So depersonalize it. Turn off your emotions. Why? Because they know deep down sex is so much more than physical. (laughs) Sex is so much more than physical that when you actually get into it, there is a unity and an intimacy that was meant for something only the marriage covenant can sustain. You can't, you can't, You can't get it any any other way around that. The problem is when we depersonalize it, it actually severely decreases our ability to form secure attachments. uh, And studies are showing this all the time. Again, when it says the two will become one flesh, And we've talked about this for the past couple weeks, but uh, these chemicals, these bonding chemicals of oxytocin and vasopressin, they're released during sexual intercourse that actually bond and unite two people together, and not just at a physical level, but that's so much more than that. And so as C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, sex without marriage is like tasting without swallowing and digesting. And so how do we get back to this? Well, Paul is saying in this moment here that sex isn't just physical. It's not just a matter of having sex, you've got to make love. So don't just have sex, make love. And this is what he's talking about here. In this self-sacrificing way, when he says you've got to fulfill the other person, that you have a duty, you've got a debt, an obligation to the other person to fulfill them. He said, this has to come at a, I've got to make love and not just have sex. And here's what's so amazing about this. God has made men and women really differently incredibly differently, and not just physically, but incredibly different emotionally too, right? This is pretty wild, but... uh in her, in her book, uh, The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, uh, Sheila Gregor uh, reflects on this biblical text, and she says anyone can learn to have sex, but it's learning how to make love that's really important. Uh, and when you approach it, I'm telling you guys and, and ladies and guys that they come at it extremely differently, okay? One of the key distinctions she makes here, and this has got to be helpful for all marriages, okay, is that men make love to feel loved that after the act of engaging together with sexual intercourse, they actually feel really loved after that. And often they'll just kind of melt into a little bit of a puddle and just be like, I love you, I love you, I love you, love you. I'll do whatever you want. Like, whatever you want, baby, this is awesome. You know, like that's what happens. Men make love to feel loved, but women need to feel loved in order to make love. Okay, watch this. Uh, this is what she says, and I love this. She says, if you want great sex... Men and women in here, and and this is generalizing a little bit, but she says, this is in her book, and this is right as as she's reflecting on, on 1 Corinthians 7. She says, men, if you want to treat your wife and fulfill this marriage duty to your wife, this is what I encourage you to do. She says, compliment her, cuddle her, Kiss her, caress her, love her, stroke her, tease her, comfort her, protect her, hug her, hold her, spend money on her, dine her, buy things for her, listen to her, care for her, stand by her, go to the ends of the earth for her. And women, if you want to please your man, just show up naked. That's it. That's all you got to do. You show up naked and the man's like, I'm in, baby, let's go. <laughs> This is just true. If you've been married for any, any stretch of the imagination like this, it's just true. So, um, but here's the amazing thing about this. Uh, because men and women are so different, and I think God designed us so differently, what he wanted in this moment is for us to realize that sex is so much more than that. That for men, like sex has to begin at breakfast. When you love your wife and you listen to her and you understand her, when you, when you sit down with her and say, man, how can I support you today? What can I do to pray for you? How can I be there to help with the kids and all these kind of chores and do all those kind of things? She's got to know that you are there for her, that you, you really love her. You understand her. You're pursuing her heart, her head, her mind, not just her body. And, man, when you do that, the engine's going to start revving up. And by the time you get home, like, it's just going to be a matter of getting the kids in bed and it's just you wait for it. And I'm telling you, the cycle is unbelievable when you focus on loving the other person every single time. When you are there to serve the other person, and you almost make it a game out of how can I serve the other better? How can I please the other better in the bedroom? Like, it's, it's a cycle that just feeds on itself. That when the woman's like, man, I'm all in, and, and just gets like fun with it, like the guy's like, man, I want to be there for you. I want to listen to you. I want to understand you. And when you understand, man, it feeds the other side. I'm telling you, the cycle just goes and goes and goes and goes. And this is what he's talking about, man. When you approach it, not for your fulfillment, but for the fulfillment of the other person, this is how it's going to thrive. And, and, and so, you know, when we look at this, just a couple of, of quick things here, okay? I just want to be really practical because we've talked about this a lot with, with other married couples that have struggled with this. Guys, your body doesn't belong to you. And here's what that means. Just because you want it doesn't mean your wife is obligated to give it to you. Just because you're not emotionally driven doesn't mean you can't be emotionally engaged. Any amens from the women in the house today? If the only time you are tender with your wife is when you're in bed with her, shame on you. Because God's meant you to bless her emotionally and mentally at all all levels. Sex begins at breakfast. Ladies, your body doesn't belong to you either. Just because you feel tired doesn't mean it's off the table. Just because he didn't connect with you perfectly doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. And just because you feel like you got an extra five pounds you want to lose and you're not feeling all that sexy right now doesn't mean that it's not the best gift that you give to (laughs) They're not concerned about the five pounds you're concerned about. You don't have to be a 10 on the image scale for your husband to think that you're the sexiest thing alive. And you got to lean into that confidence of who you are and what your husband sees you at, because, man, God has made you guys to thrive at that level, okay? Here, here's one of the, the bottom lines on this one. Sex on your wedding night doesn't compare to sex 25, 30 years down the road if you've done it right. When you, when you engage that cycle of, man, I'm here for you, I'm fulfilling your needs, I'm here for you, for, for whatever you need in this one, I'm not going to deprive you emotionally, I'm not going to deprive you physically, I'm not going to deprive you spiritually, man. That cycle, when it repeats over and over, it gets better and better and better and better. But you've got to engage that list of like, man, how can I love you? How can I serve you? How can I know you? This is what Jesus did for us. And I think this is what's so beautiful about sex, because it points to something so much bigger than just a man and a woman in this. Sex is ultimately supposed to be a pointer to our ultimate, infinite, incredibly intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. In the, in the great marriage passage in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul says, after encouraging his uh, the the wives in the in the the uh, in the relationships, man respect your husband and 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 lift him up that way. He says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Men in the room, if you approach your wife that way, sacrificing, lowering yourself and saying, what can I do for you? I'm telling you, the relationship will thrive. And it's all pointing to the fact that God wants to be perfectly united with us. That's what sex is, ultimately. That's why he gave it to us. And we can flourish in that. All right, so here's the last question in this one. How how do we, like, if, if sex really shapes our marriage, if we engage it right, then what's at stake if we don't do this? Or what's at stake if we don't do this frequently? Watch this. Again, in the passage in 1 Corinthians 7, three through five, it says we ought to fulfill this duty, right? And he says, don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control, right? And what is he saying in this? Here's the last thing I want you to write down. Fight the lies by being fully and frequently sexual with each other. Fight the lies. We are in a war, an all-out war on your mind and your heart. And in marriage, I'm telling you, when we deprive each other for long enough, the temptations get loud. And all sorts of things are going to come in on your marriage from a pornography standpoint, from someone else in the office who's just flirting a little bit with you, from all sorts of other things. Like, you are going to get bombarded on a daily basis, and the enemy wants nothing more than to steal your soul by stealing your marriage. He knows if he can get inside your marriage, he'll get inside all sorts of other things. And so he says, we've got to fight. We have got to fight. And one of the amazing things in this is that we get to fight by having some of the most fun that we should ever have. And if you're not fighting with this kind of fun, it will hinder your marriage, okay? Now, this was radical in the first century because men in the first century, they had wives just for childbearing purposes. This was the Greco-Roman values, If they wanted to build a family, you got a wife. If you wanted to get pleasure, you'd go find it elsewhere, especially in the city of Corinth. And what Paul is saying that's so radical here for men in the first century is that your body doesn't belong to you. You can't just do whatever you want. You've got to give it to your wife. This is how you fight spiritually for your health and for her health and together in your marriage health. And for the women, actually, there was a new level of freedom that they were discovering in the first century inside the church. Like they were being elevated and empowered in ways that the Roman culture was not. And so in in that time, they were like, man, this is incredible. And since my man is going off sleeping with whatever, I'm going to rise above that and I'm just going to deprive him and I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to be spiritual. And Paul's saying, no, no, your body doesn't belong to you either you got to come together on this one. This is a war that you're in. And don't let the, and it's not, you can do whatever you want with your body. No, you're in an all-out war. And when you buy those lies, it damages both of you. This is not about you. This is about you together. And so, man, give her the exclusive rights that she needs and give him the exclusive rights that he needs because there's holistic melding of body, mind, and emotions and souls that ultimately points back to this beautiful relationship that we have with God. We're in a war And and on the frequency side of things, uh, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, he said this is just kind of a a quick tip. I just thought this was helpful. He said, if you really want to keep the devil at bay, aim for two to three times a week. Some of you are just like, nah, man, we're good. We can do it like once a week or maybe a couple times a month. Do you really want to put that much temptation in your marriage? The enemy of your soul is going after you. How much temptation do you want? Paul's saying, man, if you want to kill the enemy's presence in your life at a marriage level, be frequent, be frequent. Man, marriages, I encourage you when you leave today, have that conversation and ask the genuine question and don't just back off, like ask each other, man, how are we doing in this? Do you feel like this is enough? Like, is it frequent enough? Am I fulfilling you? Am, Am I understanding your needs? Am I understanding your heart? Am I understanding your emotions? Am I understanding your mind? Do I I really, do you feel loved and and, and valued by me? Ask those kind of questions. Because man, in these kind of questions, I'm telling you, God will save your marriage. Here's my hope. Wherever you're at in this, if you're married or you're single, I want you to know that no matter where you are on this, God has a pathway for incredible intimacy and flourishing. And my hope for you, if you're single, man, God may or he may not give you the gift of being married one day. Did you know that ultimately God's going to retire sex? In the new heavens and the new earth, it's not going to exist anymore. Because people will never be given in marriage. Like Marriage is not going to be a thing. It's going to be this beautiful collection. Why? Because the, the moment that we're going to be with Jesus forever and for all eternity, the pleasure of knowing him and being known by him is going to far exceed anything that we can experience even sexually today. Don't buy the lie that you're not fulfilled, you're not a whole human if you don't have sex. Jesus is enough. He died for you so he could erase all of the barriers between you and him. And when you engage that relationship frequently, going to him in prayer and in daily study and journeying with him and giving your life over to him, he's gonna set you on a trajectory of not just intimacy with God forever, but pleasure like you'd never believe. It will happen. Hang in there, hold out. He's got better things for you. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, this is a very private, personal conversation. And God, I, I pray that if there's anyone in the room today, or even those who are going to be listening to this podcast later on, who feel like all the wounds from the past have just surfaced at the table, all the longings that have gone unmet are just pounding on the surface of the door and of my heart and my mind. Lord, I pray that you'd show up. I pray that you would be the one to heal marriages today. And not just heal them, God, but help them to flourish and to thrive and to look at each other and say, man, I'm all in for you. And in that self-sacrifice, God, let their marriages be at a level that they've never dreamed it could be. God, for those who are single, Lord, I pray that they experience the goodness of being united with you like never before. And and God, by the, the act, the sheer beautiful, uh, take up my cross daily act of denying themselves and saying, God, I will not have sex outside of marriage, knowing that it damages me. I pray that you'd honor them in that. Give my brothers and sisters the strength to fight this week, to hold out and say, man, I'm going to give my whole heart to Jesus, knowing that he's got me covered. We pray for healing. We pray for flourishing. God, when we pray...